Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Dave Baxter and today I'm joined by Mark Williams, Partner and Fund Manager at Somerset Capital. Mark works on the Somerset Emerging Markets Dividend Growth Fund and the Somerset Asia Income Fund. We're going to be talking about developments in the Asia and EM region, but in particular, we'll be focusing on some of the dramatic news we've seen coming out of China in recent weeks. Mark, thanks for joining. As I mentioned, it's really all eyes on China at the minute. And we've seen plenty of restrictions announced on the tech sector, uh, even in just recent days. But also we've seen various measures being brought out across different industries from tutoring to other sectors. Very broad question to start off with, but how would you characterize what's happening? And what are the main takeaways for investors focusing on China? Thank you, David. I think when we look at what's going on in China at the moment, for us, the important thing is to recognize that a lot of these things have actually been going along for some time. And in terms of policies that are being implemented, they're not that extraordinary. And so if we look at some of the areas where there has been a recent focus on regulation, particularly a lot of press talk about regulation, property has definitely been a target. But ever since I've been investing in China, property has always been a potential lever for growth for China. And so it's one thing that the government believes that it can to some degree control, either through limiting the amount of second property purchases that people are allowed, the access to capital for those purchases, and even the debt levels for some of the developers. You mentioned the internet. That's obviously been a big factor. And this started last year, I think, when Jack Ma was looking to launch Ant Financial. And the regulator, I think, effectively gave a message that this wasn't desired And to my mind, again, it was something that the Chinese government has been very, very keen on since the financial crisis, the global financial crisis, which is controlling the overall financial system. And they wanted regulation that encompassed and financial. And so that is something that they then went and put in place. And again, that's not something that's particularly strange to China. Two that stand out to me as maybe different in their approach Uh, First of all, Didi, which listed in the States, and then very shortly after that listing, there was an announcement that the company was under investigation, and it was to do with data protection. Again, data protection, that's something that governments around the world are struggling with. But the timing of the announcement shortly after an IPO, to my mind, made a bit of a difference. And then that was followed up with, again, you've mentioned it, but education. And there... There was, there'd been an ongoing review for some time. So we were expecting some announcement and share price had partly reflected that. But there was an announcement that these after-school tutoring businesses with very strong, viable, profitable businesses were told to become not-for-profit. And it's something that we've, we've seen policies, particularly in the A-share market, that we haven't liked before. In 2005, when there was... Um, a big sell-off in the Chinese market, and there was a recovery, largely government-driven. At one point, I think up to 80% of the A-share market was suspended. And so they're willing to do things and have done things that we would see as policy mistakes historically. But 
not where international investors have been involved. And that, for me, is the real issue here. It's whether or not the Chinese government, via the regulator, is paying less attention to international capital. Yeah, that's really interesting. I suppose particularly given it comes at a time as increasingly, you know, China is being seen perhaps as its own market more. And now some investors are, you know, at the kind of halfway point this year, we saw part of BlackRock started to, they basically split China out of their previous emerging markets category in terms of their, when they look at regions in terms of outlook. Is there a way for international investors to deal with this? And also, should they now be more wary on particularly particular sectors than others, such as kind of tech and spaces like that? Well, I think that's exactly the crux of this. And behind it all, there was a, a recent statement in January this year talking about companies having to work for common prosperity. And my view on this is that China always has has one remit when you're looking at the Communist Party. And when they're talking about common prosperity, effectively companies acting for the good of the overall population, there will be some conflicts. And I think having invested in China for, for a number of years now, one of the most important things there is that we always know the government, the regulator, is going to be looking to execute things in a way that will continue to maintain stability. And that might be banks lending to areas where economically it's not going to be that profitable. Or it might be, in the common case, making very swift regulatory changes in a way that will hurt some minority shareholders. My view, though, and it's very important, is that I think the Chinese government, China as a whole, will continue to want access to international capital. And with that in mind, I would see this as error, swiftness, the way they executed the regulation. As I said earlier, I don't think the actual regulation itself is that bad. The policy, what they desire, isn't that abnormal, but it's just the way they went about it. And I would see that as an error, which I think is unlikely to be repeated because they won't want to scare off international money. They will need international investment over the coming decades. And so whether it's via Hong Kong or directly through the A-share market, um, I think that we should just be very, very wary of what the government wants, where the regulator is likely to make these changes. And that's something that we've, we've always had to do to some degree. I mentioned property, whether or not the government is looking to increase growth, allow the property market to go forward or try and pull it back. Those are things that we've always had to look at. And I don't think it changes that. But I do think this idea of common prosperity means it's now slightly broader than it has been. So I would say if you look at China, there's a huge investable universe there. There are some very large companies with fantastic liquidity across a large number of different areas, whether it be different sectors or even within those sectors, the industries. And we can find potential. We have increased our exposure to China during this. And equally, if you look at the Asia Income Fund, we've outperformed with our significant weighting in China during this period. So what we want to do is continue to look for the type of companies we like, ones that they have the growth, they 
do pay dividends. And over the longer term, that combination of growing income and also decent valuations should give you capital appreciation. And we still find opportunity within that set at the moment. So I don't think that this writes off China. I think we have to be more cautious about the areas that regulation might hit. And I think we have to accept that the risks of those regulations going against you are greater than we previously thought, as has been evidenced by the education sector. But that does not stop us from maintaining or even increasing our weighting to China over the longer term, because we still think that there's plentiful opportunity within that. Which sectors are you kind of keen on? And are there any sectors that you grow more wary of in light of kind of recent developments? Well, because of our aim for targeting companies where they not just have the growth, but also they're paying dividends and valuations are reasonable. This is meant for the Asia Income Fund that we haven't been significantly exposed to the ones that have been caught by the regulator. And so particularly the internet names, they're good companies, but they were at, I would say, lofty valuations. And over the longer term, I would expect at some point people to accept that this regulatory impact on them has peaked and they will provide fantastic um, investment opportunities. But again, unless they start paying reasonable dividends for the Asia Income Fund, they're not something we're going to invest Mm. in. So that's one area where there's clearly been an increase in risk. The areas that we like most tend to be the slightly more cyclical areas. So whether it be shipping um, or whether it be there's a glass manufacturer that they have, or there's a pharmaceutical company that we also bought into about four or five months ago. Those are sort of areas where, although, yes, there are risks, maybe the government will look at them and say, you're making too much profit. We think it's unlikely because their share of overall profit isn't so great that we think that they're going to impact their end customers in a way that the government will rail against. And so it's areas like that where we still think you've got this ongoing global recovery. You've got good growth still coming from China. Yes, we're past the peak of the rebound and we're maybe back to more normal levels. But I think we can find these companies and invest for the longer term future in a way that they're not that likely to be caught up by regulation. And the other thing is that diversification is the key with all these funds. I think the indices are too concentrated in those large internet names. And what we look for is a broader exposure, not just to China, but the region as well. But within China, a broader exposure by individual companies, which tend to be with what I'm saying we're looking for, again, income, growth, decent valuations in a lot of the mid caps. And I think you get great opportunities there. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good point you make about the um, composition of indices with, um, I can't remember how much it is currently, but usually around, was it 40% of the kind of Asia and EM indices in, in China? And as you say, those kind of big names like Alibaba are a really big part of the uh, the indices. I suppose the kind of development, what do the developments in China mean for broader prospects at the minute for EM and Asia? It must be quite discouraging for some investors in, in that space. Some investors will be discouraged, but maybe that's a reflection of the past few years where those internet names particularly have done incredibly well. And I think people have lost sight of the fact that 
China is an emerging market and emerging markets are called emerging markets for a reason. And there are risks inherent to those, which is why they're not described as developed markets. And so I think this is maybe a reality reality check rather than a change. And again, we knew there were regulatory risks in China. We know the banks I referred to earlier, but we knew post-financial crisis that the banks were asked to lend to certain areas of the economy where in the developed world, that would have been done from public sector borrowing. The system isn't in place. The financial plumbing isn't there in China to enable that. And so it went through the banking system. So we know that these things happen. We know that the regulatory environment may end up with different ways of money being passed around. And regulation is a risk. And I think this is an important realization of that. But it doesn't actually, to my mind, change the overall reason for investing in these areas in that, yes, they're emerging economies, but also they're fast growing. And that's why we invest in them. We want to invest in the higher growth areas. There will be greater risks. And that's not just in China. If you look around the rest of the emerging markets, whether it's politics in Latin America, um, the recent firing in Turkey um, of the government of the central bank, these things are, are, are real issues that come to impact investors. And um, we should bear that in mind when, in, when investing. So what we've seen, I don't like it. It increases the risk definitely whilst we're in the midst of this regulatory spat. But I personally don't see it as anything new. And I think if you look at what's happened, particularly with the amount of spending at a government level during COVID, Asia, particularly North Asia, looks very strongly set from here. They don't have the debt levels. If you look at valuations for equities, they look pretty good compared to the rest of the world. And that is where a lot of the growth will come from. And so you look around emerging markets, there are risks politically in Latin America. You see them with Turkey, with the sacking of the central bank governor. Everywhere in emerging markets, there are risks. But if you look at the levels of debt that the developed world are going to have to get out of post-financial crisis and post-COVID on top of that, I think that that actually separates emerging markets in a very positive way. Speaking of um, kind of debt, I suppose um, before um, before we saw these kind of really obvious uh, instances of kind of regulatory crackdowns in, in China in recent weeks and months, there was a lot of talk of, I suppose, China kind of reining in credits and kind of slowing things down, which was also seen as potentially... Um, a negative in the short term but there's been some quite interesting arguments around that made that actually these actions while painful for the time being could kind of improve the uh, so-called quality of any economic growth is china sort of a kind of slow burn but improvement story in future or how do you kind of view it i very much subscribe to that view i think that and again, I mentioned this in a previous question, China's financial plumbing is different from that of the developed world. They don't have the same mechanisms in place. And what they need is a broader bond market. They need to be able to allocate credit properly or capital properly. They need to understand 
um, the cost of capital. And the only way they can do that is by moving away from an implicit guarantee in anything that is state-owned, which is what we still have to some degree, and to allow some failures. Some companies and some relatively large ones are not viable entities over the longer term. And the only way that people can understand the cost of credit, that markets can be allowed to efficiently allocate capital, is by allowing failure. And we have that in the West. Companies do go bankrupt relatively regularly, particularly smaller ones. And so I think as they move down this, it will be a difficult process, but it's one that I see is essential for longer-term development. And so I would like to see a reduction in debt in certain areas. And it's not in aggregate, to my mind. There's very little sovereign debt for China. They have ways of reapportioning debt to align it with more international norms, which yeah, it's tricky, and there will always be beneficiaries and losers of that, so it becomes political to an element. But equally with a single party, they may be able to do this in a way that others can't, because those state-owned enterprises are state-owned. The banks are state-controlled. They do have different levels of control. And while they do this, what they have to avoid is effectively a, a financial crisis. And so I think it will always be two steps forward, one step back. It's playing or walking along a fairly narrow path, but it's one that, from what I see, they are attempting to do and are continuing to attempt to do. So the direct answer to your question is, in certain areas, that will be a negative for growth. But that's fine, because you can't have unfettered growth. China, pre-financial crisis, was growing at double-digit levels in terms of GDP. It was too fast. It can now grow at about half that, and the country will do well. Unemployment will not particularly rise. And so they should take this opportunity to do some of that rebalancing um, and allow some of the companies, which were there for effectively a social purpose as much as anything else, to fail or for some of those assets to be reallocated elsewhere. Mm. And that will potentially put them in a position to grow for the future. But it's not easy. It's one of the things that I think we have to pay most attention to. And it needs to continue. You need to be very wary of these companies, whether it's a heavily indebted property company or any of the others. Um, and it's not something that I would want to invest in. And there will be some collateral damage should these things go bust. But that, to my mind, is our job. It's the same anywhere else. We look for companies where you get the positives of the growth of China or the region whilst avoiding the risks that come alongside that. Another thing I wanted to cover is, I suppose, the IPO space really in all markets this year has been really exciting. There's been lots of IPOs going on. But that's something, that's an area that's been affected by the crackdown as well. What are the main effects you would expect to see there? You know, do you, do you think we'll just see kind of fewer interesting Chinese companies coming to market for the time being? Um, what do you think will happen? With this in mind, for both of the income funds, the emerging markets and the Asia one, we bought Hong Kong Exchange in the midst of the sell-off. And the rationale behind that is because there will potentially be some negative impact. There may be a restriction on IPOs by the Chinese government, which they have done in the past. So they may, the regulator may slow down IPOs, and that would clearly be a negative. 
The positives, if you're looking at Hong Kong exchange, though, is China is making it clear that it would rather, if companies want to access international capital, to do it via Hong Kong. And so the U.S. listings are maybe more likely to do secondary listings in Hong Kong, maybe potentially going to relist in Hong Kong, and that seems to be what the Chinese government wants. And again, you have a, a perfectly viable international market on which they can do that, which is the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. So that would be a positive. And equally, people. Don't seem to recognise that the structures listed in the US are quite often um, caught between two competing rules: Chinese regulation and US regulation, and they actually conflict in terms of the data protection, particularly within auditors that the Chinese regulator insists these companies maintain, compared to the disclosure that the US regulator insists upon, and so both. At the moment, from a U.S. regulatory perspective, and also from the desires of China, they are being pushed to other exchanges. I personally think you'll probably get some reconciliation of the two at some point in the future, but there'll be quite a, a bit of、um, argy bargy before they get there. But in the meantime, I think what happens is you get an Increased number of companies deciding to have their international listings in Hong Kong. So, from that point of view, we see Hong Kong as having sold off the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. That is having sold off、um, and coming back to levels where we think it looks enticing, given that there is a long list of IPOs. And worst comes to worst, they will maybe be delayed, but they will still be there for the future. And so we saw that as an opportunity in terms of what we're looking at. It fits our bill. The regulator will be supportive of that. We think it's an area that is likely to benefit from this over the longer term. Are there any names that are particularly exciting that have been subject of IPO expectations that you had in mind? No, I mean we would look at each on its own merits. Again, if you look at our. Remit. It's companies that we know are going to pay dividends in the coming twelve months, and actually, for IPOs, quite often that's not the case. It's not necessarily the the、um, biggest pool to fish in for us. So the IPOs themselves is not something I'm particularly excited about. The fact that they're going to be likely to come onto the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, I am excited about. And I suppose moving beyond China, perhaps people obsess too much about China. And as we've discussed, it is a big part of the market. But where else is kind of exciting you at the minute? You know, what what are the most interesting opportunities? Is is there any kind of region that might kind of benefit from all the focus on the kind of、um, turbulence we're seeing in China? If you look at the Asia income portfolio, we've got forty four percent in Hong Kong and China combined, and we always look at it as a combination of the two because. Effectively, they're Chinese companies. They just happen to be listed in Hong Kong. So obviously, there's over half the portfolio that's elsewhere. I mean, the areas that we've been most excited about and that have done well is we've got about 20% in Taiwan, and that is almost entirely. There's a cement company in there, but apart from that,、um, it's through IT companies, and particularly it's the component manufacturers. So that's as much international demand. They did very well. In the midst of COVID, as 
I'm sure you, but I definitely, and Somerset Capital as well, had to increase their IT spending. They just needed more and more up-to-date technology. And so that's one area that we've held for a long time. Um, We tend to like the components, particularly if they're not driven by single brands. So we're not trying to factor in whether or not Apple's next phone launch is going to do well or badly but more something that will feed in maybe the connectors into servers, maybe the servers themselves, some of the assemblers. So that's been strong for us and remains significant. We also like South Korea. That's 10% of the portfolio. Some of it is domestic, but also LG Chemical is one of our larger holdings there. That's been a positive because when we bought it, which is a number of years ago now, Not only did you have the strengths of a very good petrochemical company, which effectively, because you'd had the investments in Asia in petrochemicals, they were much more efficient, more modern than the developed world competitors who hadn't had the investment largely for environmental reasons. So they were strong on that. But also when we bought it, they had a loss making battery division. And it was only loss-making, not because of quality, but because of scale. And it was already winning some contracts. I think Jaguar was the one that it got a contract for just before we bought it. And so it was at international levels, but being effectively priced at zero within the portfolio. So that was one then domestic career through the banks. And I think financials around the region, one area where we've actually seen them slightly dismissed by markets in that everyone was terrified about the levels of unemployment that we were going to expect, the levels of non-performing loans, and they just really haven't come through. And we've had conversations throughout the emerging markets with the banks, and it's very hard to find anyone that thinks that non-performing loans have been worse than expected. Mostly they've provisioned more than they now believe they should, and they're able either to lower their provisioning or even to um, pay back some of that provisioning. So um, reduce it. So that's been an area of significant strength there. And that's, again, they're more a domestic play within Korea. And then the other, we've got um, a significant amount, 5% in Thailand. Um, And then that's, again, largely domestic. So Jasmine Broadband, digital telecommunications, those two where they're playing into the ongoing increased data consumption, but via the infrastructure rather than, as I mentioned in Taiwan, via some of the components that we've owned. So, I mean, I think the most important thing, in fact, that a lot of people forget is that Asia has always been seen largely because of the importance of China as a manufacturer for the rest of the world. And I think one of the things that we've got to acknowledge is that actually It's now, as much as anything else, a source of demand. And that's something. And there's one company, one of my favorite companies, is a company called SITC. And they're a container shipping company. They're Hong Kong listed. But the joy of their business is that they go into the smaller ports. They've got small ships, um, but they go into the smaller ports around the region. And what we're seeing is an increased amount of intra-Asian trade, And whether it's selling to China or providing components to China, which then assembles and sells them onto the rest of Asia, and they benefit from all of that. They also have an overland logistics element in China. And it basically is one of the few ways that you can play companies need to get door to door delivery 
within the Asia Pacific region. And I think that for me is the bit that makes Asia stand out at the moment compared to a lot of the rest of the world is that this evolution into a region where they're fulfilling the demand as well as the actual manufacturing takes them into a level where they're much better protected than they have been in previous cycles. So that's quite interesting. Do you find yourself kind of moving away from names that are perhaps more reliant on exports to outside of Asia? I mean, the areas that we're most excited about are actually the ones who are able potentially to um, export at a higher level and at the moment are starting to replace some of the imports. And so that is area. There's a company, Wei Chai Power, they make diesel engines. They're, they're at an international level of quality longer term. So there's no need for these companies to, or those parts of heavy duty trucks to be imported. You've got a, a domestic manufacturer, Shinyi Glass, likewise, with, I think, the, uh, I can't remember the number actually, I think it was about 20% of replacement windscreens in the world came via Shinyi Glass, the glass that they manufacture. And so those are the areas that I think are really exciting. And strangely enough, if you look at high quality listed companies, there are definitely some, but the market isn't actually that dominated by manufacturers in a way that a lot of people think or in a way that it probably used to be. One area we haven't mentioned that used to be, I suppose, going back to casting our minds back to perhaps 2017 was a bit of a darling of the kind of Asian emerging market space is India. And I suppose there's been quite an interesting journey there and quite a lot of volatility in particular last year. What are your what are your kind of views on on India at the minute? I mean, is that is that an area you focus on much? I mean, it is. It's an area that we look at. We do invest in. My so at the moment in the Asia Income Fund, we've got about five percent in India in three companies. But the general reason why we don't have more tends to be valuations. Mm. And so, India has some fantastic strengths. If you look at its demographics. They've got a perfect pyramid. They've got the support with the young for the old in a way that China doesn't, Korea doesn't. It's not got the aging population issues that you do elsewhere. So that's fantastic. You've got a burgeoning middle class. That's fantastic. But if we look at the companies that we want to invest in, they tend to trade at multiples, particularly if it's um, discretionary consumption, which should be a big benefit or infrastructure, because one of the things India lacks is infrastructure. So it needs to have huge spending to enable it to continue to grow and compete with the rest of the region. Um, But the companies which are going to benefit in areas like that tend tend to trade uh, maybe 30 times forward PE. They're very expensive compared to the opportunities that we see elsewhere. So we continue to look at India. Like I say, we have exposure. We have had more in the past. But we tend to be able to find companies with similar growth in different areas of the region at cheaper valuations. And that's the main reason why we don't have more. Mm, Really interesting. Well, I'm afraid that's uh, all we have time for. But um, Mark, thank you very much for coming on today and uh, shedding some light in particular on the China situation. And thank you everyone for listening. 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 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 Mm